You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So um, I recently picked up a book called Reading Romans Backwards. And um, it's by Scott McKnight. It's more or less a commentary on the book. And his insight is that the letter of Romans was not just dropped down out of the sky or written in a vacuum, but it was written to a specific people at a specific time in a specific way for specific reasons. And Paul had his own reasons for that. Um, Though Paul hadn't gone to Rome, he knew a lot of people who were already in Rome. In the last chapter of Romans 16, you read it through, there's 35 different names that are mentioned. It's kind of like the Facebook of the New Testament. Everybody's mentioned there. Paul knows them, and many of them are already in Rome. Like they said, all roads lead to Rome, and a lot of people were there. It was kind of the center of the Roman Empire. And so his intention was to write a letter to the Romans in order to then go to Rome after these five to eight house churches already were established there, but to go to Rome and use it as his launching pad to go even farther west to places like Spain or Gaul or France or wherever to keep sharing the gospel. But that was not his main intent. His main intent was not to write this theological treatise, this opus, um, although it is, by the way, it's probably the most theologically heavy book of the New Testament, most thorough. But his deal was to address the situation, Scott McKnight says, in Rome and in these five to eight house churches already going on. So how does this gospel of justification where God wants to mend broken people, broken relationships, and a broken world, how does that impact Rome? And we're going to read the end of the book, Romans 16, right now, just a portion of it, to get where Paul, the destination where Paul starts in Romans 1. So you might want to read this with me, okay? It starts at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So did you all hear any clues at the beginning of this letter of what Paul was writing this letter to and for? Did you hear anything? What, what did you hear? Silence. <laughs> Divisions. Did you hear that? 
at the beginning, divisions. Paul says there were power plays and divisions going on. You can read this in Romans 14, 15, and 16 specifically, but he warns against divisions. And Paul says they're actually contrary to the doctrine that he taught, that is the teaching of the gospel itself, that there would be divisions within the Christian church. So the gospel comes at the end like it did at the beginning, actually. Uh, there's somebody at the door that might want to get in, so um, sorry. All right, we've got another person coming to worship. Okay, so this gospel, Douglas Moo, um, I'm not sure if James Husney, he might put this in his Facebook feed. Uh, Douglas Moo was a biblical scholar from Wheaton, so I don't know if he was there when James, who graduated from there a couple of years ago, was there. But he wrote a ginormous, like it's this thick, uh, commentary on um, Romans, and this is what he says. Prominent here again is the theme of the revelation of the gospel as a pinnacle of salvation history and as a message of universal applicability. What a sentence, I know, but this is the important one. Paul ends where he begins, okay? So we're going to see at, in this end where Paul actually begins the letter and how it ties into the end. And from uh, Romans 16, we're going to learn three different points in our sermon today. We're going to have these thoughts organized under a burning passion, a real-life example, and all-inclusive mission. And the first point is the burning passion. Okay, burning passion. So here at the end of the letter, Paul makes a strong appeal, and he says, again, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Paul hated divisions, hated divisions. And you can find this is a theme that comes up in a number of his letters. I won't go into all of them, but I'm going to point out at least the one that uh, two of them, uh, although you could find it almost in every one of his letters, something about divisions that are happening within the church. In Corinth, he is just shocked and appalled that some are saying, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. He said, how has Christ been divided? And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, again, that same word of appeal, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, in the book of Ephesians, he says the mystery of the gospel that's now been revealed, as he says here at the end of Romans, is the fact that the Jews and Gentiles are put together and the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down so that we are one family in this world under Jesus Christ. One. And in Galatians, he specifies all the divisions that can happen so easily in society, but in Christ, they are no longer there. And he says this in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul's been emphasizing, he says, it's important, it's vital, it's the way it's supposed to be. We are to be united, even though we are diverse. We are to be equal and in community, one family, not a bunch of separate organizations based on things that God has torn down that would divide us. You know, Rome itself 
as a people try to unite a diverse and widespread population of people. It's the Roman Empire spread over, you know, the entire known world at that time, right? How did Rome try to unite all of these diverse people? And uh, it's been called the Pax Romana. Have you ever heard that term before? It's actually a myth. Although um, Seneca in 55 AD mentions the Pax Romana for the first time, they say it had been around since 31 BC when uh, Caesar Augustus basically conquered the world and brought it under his power. It was basically the myth that if you have a centralized government with high, strong military power and you conquer a bunch of people, you put them in subjection, you will then bring about peace for everyone. But here's the funny thing is if you look over this period of history from 31 BC to about 150-ish AD, <laughs> Rome was involved in numerous wars during the, quote, Pax Romana such peace. And not only that, though, society was so stratified in their day and age, they actually had a, um, five different classes of people within the Roman Empire, at least, okay? This whole pyramid where the patricians were at top, then the equites, and then the plebeians, the freedmen, and the slaves at the bottom, and about a third of all Romans in Rome were slaves. And not only on top of that, Rome was a highly patriarchal society. I didn't realize this again until I read it and go like, whoa, I didn't realize it was this bad. But for women, uh, a, a woman was subject to the will of her father even after she was married. She had to listen, not just listen, but actually had to follow any of his commands. And women had no political voice and no power in society. And on top of that, Greeks and Romans were obsessed with what we would call race or ethnicity. They had at least five different words for it, ethnos, genos, phila, gens, and natio. At least five different words to classify what we call race or ethnicity today. So much like our modern culture, Rome was held together by just a few economic realities and a lot of military power but it was a powder keg of divisions, disunity, cynicism, animosity, and even conspiracy theories flourished. In fact, Nero himself spread one. When Rome burned, Tacitus says he blamed the Christians for it. Nice little conspiracy theory. Any of this sound a little familiar to you? Does this sound a little like our society right now? And within this reality of a divi divisive, quote, but united society like Rome, Paul says, I'm going to show you what real unity looks like. We, in the body of Christ, we, in the people of God, in his kingdom, are truly one and need to display it. He has a burning passion for this. He has a burning passion that under the cross of Jesus Christ, all the divisions that we have brought about in this world and all the brokenness will be mended. And the big brokenness that you can see through the status of different individuals, through the gender differences, through the ethnicities and racial differences that were in the Roman world, Paul says is actually all issues of power and privilege 
and our position of power and privilege has been overturned by Jesus himself. So Scott McKnight writes in that uh, book, Reading Romans Backward, Romans is about power and privilege and power. Paul's gospel deconstructs power and privilege. Paul's lived theology turns power upside down and denies privilege. So that's his burning passion that's in this gospel, uh, in this letter. It's that the gospel cuts across and brings together and unites and mends gender, race, status, culture. The question's really about the Christian church today and our uh, 21st century and about us here at Thrive. That was Paul's passion, but is that ours? You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said back in the 60s that the most segregated hour in America was on Sunday morning. And sadly, that hasn't changed that much since he said that in the 1960s. But J.D. Greer, a pastor up in the Carolinas, said he'd like to add a corollary to that. He said it may be that the hour between 6 and 7 p.m. every evening is the most segregated hour in our society. It's when we sit down to dinner. And his point is this. Multi-ethnic unity on the weekends comes from multi-ethnic friendship through the week. Now, we've said it thrives since the beginning. Relationships are everything. But we never said that relationships are easy. <laughs> we have never said that relationships are convenient. We've never said that relationships are an effective way to grow a church large, because it probably isn't. You know what's a much more effective way to grow a large church is entertainment and consumption, not relationships. You can attract a crowd to have fun or to get a, a big boost, but to develop relationships, it takes a lot of work. And we say relationships are everything because we see in the Bible, relationships are absolutely vital. Our relationship to God that needs mending and our relationship to each other that needs mending. And God brings that about in the gospel. And the United States is kind of a modern day Rome, is it not? And we have to, as the church, show that we can be countercultural to what we've seen in the news, in our society again this week, in places like Kenosha, in places across Portland, everywhere. We've seen these divisions and this animosity and alienation. And um, I'm not saying don't protest. I'm, not I'm saying don't be violent. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, scapegoat this group or that group. I'm saying the, that only Jesus Christ, when he is seen as your Lord and Savior, is going to really bring about the reconciliation and the mending of all relationships as he intends. And it's going to take work. So we've got to ask the question is, how are we going to be different than what our, way our society is going? It's who are you befriending in our culture that the culture would say, why are you wasting time on them? They don't offer you anything. Who are you inviting into your life and who are you serving and who is serving you? How are we living out the reality of what Paul talks about that was his passion in this gospel? The gospel is not a set of abstract doctrines. You know, here's, if you believe these things, if you know them up here, then you're going to heaven. That's not what the gospel's about. 
The gospel is that is to be lived out here on earth. Our destination, by the way, in the New Testament is not to escape the world. The destination is that God would bring about a transformation of this world. When Jesus comes back, the kingdom of God descends from heaven to earth, and heaven and earth are united in this beautiful marriage in the book of Revelation, where God recreates the earth and brings heaven down here. And at this point in time, even while we are living in this broken world, God wants to show how he is mending relationships and mending this world through his church. We are to be living out the reality of the gospel now in our relationships. So that's Paul's burning passion. I I pray that it is our passion here too. And then Paul gives us some great real-life examples, point two. Like I mentioned, uh, Romans 16 is kind of like a Facebook of the New Testament. There are actually a list of about 35 different names listed. We didn't go through them all. It starts at Romans 16, verse 1. And uh, 29 of the people, from what we can tell, are people he knew in Rome itself at the time. And when you look at this list of people he's greeting or telling to greet one another, you find some amazing things. First of all, you find out that there's racial diversity going on in the church in Rome. Some of the names, just by the names, you can tell they are Jewish names, and some are Gentile names, and some are from Asia, from Europe, and from the Middle East. So you've got quite the variety in Rome. And Paul celebrated the Christian church is not only a place where people live next to each other, but they become one family together and treat each other as family from a wide variety of backgrounds. And what amazes me, too, is I don't know if you read through this later on uh, today, Romans 16, just for fun. It's not a hard chapter. It's got a lot of weird names, I know. But, um, you know, Tertius, I don't think, Hunter, that could be the name of your first child. (laughs) Tertius Kessler. I kind of like that. TK. Yeah, there you go. Okay, but... um, What you find out is Paul, here at the beginning, tells them to greet the people of this household. Greet the person here. Greet this person. He's not saying, I greet them. I want you to greet each other. I want you to be getting along in Rome. Already we see there might be some divisions that have started that Paul wants to mend. Now you might say, well, wouldn't it be easier if... Paul just said, hey, it's okay. You can have your Jewish church, and you have a Gentile church, and you have a slave church, and you have a nobleman church. That might be easier. But Paul says, that's not the church. That is not the church. The racial diversity and harmony that the Christian church is to display is a significant expression of the gospel of grace. It needs to be displayed. Paul understood that that's what God's goal was. Now, also in Romans 16, what we find is social class diversity. So I talked about the five different kind of classes they had. What's fascinating is if you read through the whole chapter in in verse 10, there's this name Aristobulus. And then in verse 11 is Narcissus. And both are said to be the head of households, which means they were probably of a a state or one of the top, you know, on the pyramid scheme. It also probably means they were holding churches in their own house. They were noblemen. And then some believe that 
The name Aristobulus being so unique was a grandson of Herod the Great because there is a person named that, and he happened to be in Rome, which would be fascinating. Then later on in the letter, that, that I, part that I did read, um, we have Erastus, who's called the city treasurer, not of Rome, but of the place from which the letter was written. And then later, also in the letter, there are names like Rufus and Urbanus. Both are common slave names. In the Christian church, all these people sit together equals in the family. That's the way it is. Now, one of the great works of uh, history of slavery in the world is by an African-American named Thomas Sowell. And he points out that slavery has been a part of almost every large human culture, every major culture in the world, but only in those where the gospel starts taking hold do we see a moral struggle against slavery and a lot of what he calls guilt literature, you know, saying this is wrong, you're treating human beings in a terrible way, that finally gets so strong that there's a reaction and ultimately a change from within the society to bring about the removal of slavery. And he says it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ subverts the whole basis of trying to treat people in a different status and subverts all hierarchies that we would ever establish. That there is really only one race, human. There's only one class in the church, sinner. And there's only one hope, the gospel. And finally, in this list, if you look through these 35 names, you find that there are about 10 of them who are women. We have Priscilla and Aquila. They've come up elsewhere. They're partners with Christ, co-workers, co-laborers with him, he calls them. And Priscilla's name is first, which is unusual in those days, which probably means she's the better, more eloquent spokesperson of the couple. And then we also see in this list the names of Aristobulus himself. And then Junia. And Junia might be his wife, but both were called outstanding among the apostles, which has been interpreted in a variety of ways, either that they were considered apostles, that is, missionaries sent out themselves, or that they were well um, regarded among the apostles that God had. Whatever way, it doesn't matter. Junia is involved in gospel ministry. And then finally, the first name that comes up in this list is the name of Phoebe in verse 1. She's called a servant, and the Greek term is diakonon, which is the word where we get deacon from. And she's called a deacon of this church in Centuria in particular, which probably means that it's not just a general term for servant, but a title that she had. She was a deacon of the church. And we find out in books like 1 Timothy chapter 3 that deacons were alongside of elders in the church that were helping run the church, organize the church, serve the church, and they had specific ministries. And so Phoebe is mentioned there. Now, what's fascinating, too, is in a number of places I read it, and Douglas Moo, who's a very conservative biblical scholar, said it as well. He said it is almost certain that Phoebe delivers this letter to Rome. 
She's the one that's carrying it. That's why she's commended so much at the beginning. And not only does she deliver the letter that Paul is writing, but she's reading it out loud to each of these five to eight house churches in Rome and probably interpreting it to the Roman congregations. Now, just get that feel right there. So Paul, who says he wants to show that there's unity within the whole family of God, that ethnicities, race, status, gender, the, the division between Jew and Gentile has now been mended through Jesus Christ. Of all the people, he could have sent Tertius, who wrote the letter, or Gaius, who was one of the benefactors, but instead he sends Phoebe to read the letter to all the Romans, embodying what he sees happens in the gospel. As J.D. Greer writes, he says, the point is these women were prominent and very influential in early ministry. They weren't merely in the back making copies and getting coffee for the men while they worked. In the church, we see a society where distinctions of superiority based on race, class, or gender no longer apply. Isn't that great? But how? You know, how do we get that to happen? How do we... Um, Get away from using power and privilege for my sake and not for your sake. How do we become a family of diverse backgrounds in any Christian church? Where we are served and serve one another. Where we pray for one another. Where we love one another. Where we forgive one another. Where we give preference to one another, as the New Testament says. Those things occur all over the place. They're encouragements, but how do you get there? You know, Rome was trying it. Trying to bring a diverse, multi-ethnic multiracial people together as one, and they only did it through military power by killing off their enemies, not winning them over, and by subjugating as many as they could, and then making patronism a, a way of making everyone obligated to each other, economic realities and military might. And let me tell you, it didn't work, because Rome falls apart. That doesn't keep you together for long. The church, Paul says, has a whole different way of doing it. Because the church has, point three, the all-inclusive mission. He lays it out here at Romans 16, verse 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says it's the gospel. The gospel that upturns power and privilege. Just think about it for a moment. Just think about Jesus himself. He had all the power. He had all the privilege. Right? I mean, in, in the book of Philippians, I don't have this uh, scripture on the screens, by the way, but it says, consider Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider being equal to God, meaning, you know, basically I could take whatever I want and have whatever I want. So even in the, his human form, he was fully equal to God, Philippians says. He had all the power that God had and all the status that God had. And what does Jesus do with that? How does God, Jesus use his power and his privilege and his status and everything that he has 
You know, he could have demanded the homage of the world just like that, just because of who he was. He could have called down legions of angels to serve him at any cost. He not only could walk on water, he could walk across all types of people in any form that he wanted to and use anything he wanted to step on anyone to do anything he wanted for himself. And he didn't do any of those. In fact, he defines being the son of God as one who would give up all to forsake all, to be, quote, disempowered, to be disemboweled, to be stripped and ridiculed and mocked and killed. That's the gospel. That Jesus, who has all power and privilege, gives it all up to save you. And then calls on us to give up our games of playing status and privilege and us versus them. Jesus was broken so you would be healed. He was killed so that you would live. He was convicted so that you'd be exonerated. He gave up his rights so that you and me, we could be called daughters and sons of God. Now, Paul knows that he's got a diverse people in front of him. And he knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to change them and bring them together as one. Because it's in the Christian church where all of a sudden you can have those who are wealthy landowners and those who are slaves be served together at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table, and uh, forgive one another and be treated as equals. And then they start seeing how society should be that way too and start bringing about more justice and more mercy and more equanimity among the rest of society. We know that the gospel is not just an abstract principle, but it's lived out by how we treat one another and love one another. Because we are justified by God's grace, I don't have to justify my status in this world anymore. I don't have to claim anything about myself. I don't have to have the recognition. I don't have to play the power games because instead I'm receiving all through the gospel itself, the power of God. So Scott McKnight writes at the end of his book, um, for Paul in Romans, the answer to division can be summed up in one word, die. This was based on the death of the Messiah. His answer is not for Jews to fight for their rights to, or boast of their Jewish heritage or Gentiles to brag of their freedom from the law, but to follow the Savior in his humiliation. True, abundant, and flourishing life can only be had by walking hand in hand with Jesus through the darkness of death to ourselves. We can give it all up, and we can serve this world. We don't have to claim our privileges or our rights. We don't have to find power over others, but we can empower, and we can love, and we can mend, and we can heal just like Jesus. Hence why Paul, at the beginning of the letter, states what kind of comes up at the end of the letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day. Um, thank you for this letter to Romans. Thank you, Lord, for the insight Paul had in your gospel that it wasn't just for some, but it was for all. And that at the foot of the cross, all the distinctions become less significant. 
we still see that we have different backgrounds. We don't wipe all that out. We see that we have different positions. But instead of using our position and our power for ourselves, we can now use it for one another, for the building up of the body, for showing the unity to the world. I pray, Lord God, your church right now in the United States is broken too. We've had many fractured relationships. We've had many scandals. We've had many problems. We've had a lot of stratification. We've had many divisions. We pray, Lord, that we can show the unity that you have intended in this church here at Thrive and into this community, that people can see how we can live and love one another, that the things in this world that might divide us in this racialized, stratified, power-hungry world, that mending and healing can happen so that community is put back together here. We pray, Lord, that you would help us here at Thrive, to be a servant to our community, to help bring about more of that healing in lives that feel broken. For people who are around us who still have a broken relationship with you, who feel alienated from you, who do not know you, Lord God, we pray you bring us into those situations to bring your hope and your reconciliation, your word of truth and forgiveness. For relations where they are broken between individuals, Lord, where you would want unity, Lord, we pray that you'd bring us in as peacemakers who help bring about the reconciliation and the dropping of all hostilities, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that this would happen and that we would be the people that you intend us to be right now, that a little heaven on earth would be lived out through us, Oh, I'm, no, Lord, it's imperfect. But this world needs it more than ever. We see that in our society right now. I pray, Lord God, um, we have people that are feeling the brokenness of their bodies in our community right now and the brokenness of um, just all sorts of things, Lord. We lift up to you right now, Andy Blankenship, as uh, she will go up to Moffat this week, that you would bless her and Jeff. Bring your healing there, Lord. We ask that you would be glorified in her life, that you would display your goodness and grace there, and that we can all rejoice with them, Lord, as one family. We lift up to you Bill Watson, who's recovering from surgery. We lift up to you those who are socially isolated right now and are congregation because of the virus and because of their health, Lord. We pray for your protection, your healing, and connect us as one. Teach us to love one another, care for one another, listen to one another, pray for one another, Lord God. We do lift up again um, our community, our schools, um, our first responders, our medical care uh, personnel who are dealing with this virus and are serving this community courageously. We pray, Lord God, that your protection and peace would be upon them. We ask, O oh Lord, that, um, that your gospel would grow, your kingdom would grow. We know, Lord, um, we see the divisions. We see the brokenness. We want to be a solution to those and to bring healing. Lord God, um, there are many other situations in our lives. You know the brokenness that each one of us still has. 
You know how easily, Lord, we are angered with others. You know how easily we want to assert our independence from you. Forgive us for those things, Lord, and bring your healing. Mend our hearts. Mend our lives. Move us to be yours fully and completely. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.